From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm Siri Belusu. This week marks the one-year anniversary of a Supreme Court decision that opened the door for states to tax online sales. The ruling in South Dakota versus Wayfair has wide-ranging implications thanks to the explosive growth of e-commerce. It could mean millions in state revenue and new complications for online businesses. And many tax lawyers expect there to be legal challenges related to the case in coming years. The case overturned a 26-year-old Supreme Court precedent that said it's unconstitutional to tax a company that doesn't have a brick-and-mortar store in the state or, as tax wonks call it, physical presence. Bloomberg tax reporter Ryan Preet has been covering the decision and how states have been reacting to their newfound taxing authority. He joins us in the studio today. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, Siri. Thanks for having me. So tell us where things stand now. Well, Siri, this ruling upended a precedent that was set back when most sales that crossed state lines were made through mail catalogs. At that stage, no state had the authority to tax those sales because of that physical presence principle. Fast forward 26 years, and hundreds of billions of dollars are being transacted online every year, and states were hungry for that lost revenue. So one year after the Supreme Court says, go ahead and tax them, states have rushed to adapt laws to do just that. What avenues are states taking to collect this tax? Well, right after the ruling, most states adopted an economic nexus law, which targeted individual sellers. And that means once you surpass a certain sales threshold, the goods are subject to a state sales tax. More recently, states have been adopting laws known as marketplace facilitator laws. Those use the same volume trigger, but instead go after online sales platforms like Amazon and Etsy. So we're a year out from the Wayfair decision, Have sellers been completely blindsided, and how have they been dealing with this patchwork of state laws? Most of them aren't happy because this is totally new for them. Less than 1% of online sellers had been collecting for years in some states under the Streamline Sales and Use Tax Agreement. That agreement helped sellers comply with sales tax laws in about two dozen states. Former Justice Kennedy actually wrote about it in the Wayfair Opinion. You sat down with someone who's been advising sellers that are on the front lines of this. Yeah, this week I sat down with Diane Yetter, founder of the Sales Tax Institute and president of the consulting firm Yetter Tax. We discussed the ruling's legacy so far and possible future legal issues. Hi, my name is Diane Yetter, and I am the founder of the Sales Tax Institute and president of Yetter Tax, which provides sales and use tax consulting services to businesses. Awesome. Well, welcome, Diane. It's really so nice to have you here on the podcast. We really appreciate you calling in. Happy to be here. Um, Obviously, we're talking about South Dakota versus Wayfair. It's been just about a year since the ruling came down, uh, June 21st, 2018. Let's just talk about what happened after the decision. What do you personally think the Supreme Court got right in their decision? What do you think maybe they got wrong? Well, what I think the court got right was I'm a believer that physical presence probably was a bit outdated. So I think the court was right in saying economic nexus is an appropriate threshold to determine whether or not there is substantial presence in a state. Mm -hmm. Uh, The world has changed and physical to me really isn't the right test. I think what it got wrong is it didn't really address the complexity as it relates to what is a reasonable or an unreasonable burden on remote sellers. And, And I think that Having South Dakota as the test state in the case, given that they're a streamlined state, they tax virtually everything, Mm -hmm. it was probably a good decision to get the court to take it. But I don't know that it was a the right state 
to have some of these questions about what is an appropriate burden addressed by the court. So I wish that was something that they they would have spent more time on and we would have gotten a little bit more direction on. Well, Diane, I also want to talk with you a little bit more about uh, states that are eliminating a part of their threshold, the tra- that transactional mm-hmm. threshold. Uh, what's your take on that? I mean, obviously the state is doing it. It, it does benefit the vendor because... You know, maybe a vendor selling two hundred one dollar items, and then they would have a compliance burden. But it also benefits the state because they have less administrative burden going after these sellers. You know, it's just less on their plate, and they they sometimes advertise it as a larger safety net for vendors. Just kind of wanted to get your take a little bit more on that. So I think the elimination of the transaction count is a very smart thing for the states to be doing. Just as you said, it is reducing the burden on the very small sellers that sell low dollar amounts, but maybe have some higher volume. I've got clients that fall into that Mm -hmm. uh, bucket of of the types of taxpayers that are being uh, sucked into this. I think the other thing is that the states, when they passed it, they didn't realize the implications. And particularly states that are now passing marketplace facilitation collection are also realizing that it is bringing into their taxpayer roles taxpayers that just don't need to be filing returns. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a burden on the sellers, but it's also a burden on the state. And I think that they needed a little bit of time to see that. And that's why we saw Washington and Colorado and now Iowa has uh, eliminated theirs. But we've also seen a number of states that just didn't include it that passed legislation this year. And I think word got around for the states that were effective last year that eliminating the transaction count was probably a good move. Mm-hmm. You know, right when the ruling came down, we saw such a high influx of these economic nexus laws, which which is what we've been talking about, laws that go directly after the online seller. But, you know, the, the big thing lately especially in the past six months or so, has been these marketplace facilitator laws, which go after these huge marketplaces such as Amazon, Etsy, eBay. Do you think that those laws are more important to the state? Do you think that they encompass, you know, they reel in more money? And do you think it's it's necessary for states to enact both uh, economic nexus and marketplace facilitator laws? Or do you think a state can bring in just as much money with uh, solely a marketplace facilitator law? So the marketplace facilitator laws are definitely the thing that I see as what is the the trend or what is Mm -hmm. the issue for 2019. You know, lastly, Diane, I just wanted to talk about a big theme that I've been hearing from a lot of lawyers and a lot of uh, CPAs and just state and local tax practitioners in general, and that is that legal issues are over the horizon. They're they're coming, and they you know they might have not materialized in a massive quantity yet. But in the next year, in the next three years, there will be a lot of legal issues, legal challenges related to the Wayfair ruling. Um, I wanted to get your take on that as well. Uh, what do you think will be the biggest legal issue, the mo- the one maybe the most common legal issue we'll see in the next year, and maybe the biggest one two, three years down the line? Hmm. So I think some of the biggest legal issues that I, I think you need to split it from the the seller's point of view and from the state's point of view. Mm-hmm. I think the sellers, uh, one of their challenges are going to be the interpretation of the laws. You know, we're, we're skilled at what we do, and we have challenges looking at some of the legislation to figure out what, what is the right measure that you use. Is it your gross sales, your retail sales, your taxable sales? 
Now with Marketplace, do you include or exclude marketplace sales? What is a transaction? The states actually don't have much uh, information out there about what is a transaction. And so I think from the seller's point of view, there is some of that uh, confusion that is going to be out there. The other thing that I think the sellers need to watch out for is class action lawsuits. So some of these sellers uh, may not have appropriate systems to collect the tax correctly. Some of the marketplaces in states that don't have marketplace facilitation, don't have appropriate technology to allow their sellers to collect the correct amount of tax. Mm -hmm. And I think that opens it up for class action lawsuits and key Tom cases that could be filed against the sellers. And to me, I think that is something that is going to come sooner rather than later. Maybe in the next Um, calendar year? uh, Probably in the next one to two calendar years, I think. Uh, Lastly, Diane, I just wanted to spell out this scenario that I got from a tax lawyer recently. It's interesting. I kind of just wanted to see what you thought about it, what you think would happen. So say there's a, you know, middle market company, maybe one that sells specialty pencils and they do $30 million a year in gross sales. This company probably sells in every state and might even trigger collection laws in several states. However, the company might only owe, you know, three to $4,000 in sales taxes into a state. But the cost of compliance is higher than that. So the company just sticks its head in the sand and says, we're not going to collect and remit the sales tax. And they invite the state to audit them and say, if you audit us, we will pay the tax because it is cheaper than complying on our own. But now the state faces a decision of its own. Does it actually go after this three, $4,000 in sales tax? Is it worth the administrative burden that it puts on the state? What do you think would happen in this situation? Would that money just go uncollected? Or do you think the state would actually pursue it? I think in the near term, the state probably isn't going to bother because mm-hmm. $3,000, $4,000 for one year, two year isn't going to make the state want to pursue that. Mm-hmm. However, I think within a couple years, The technology, the data analytics that are going to be out there is going to make it very inexpensive for states to audit. They're going to simply say, give me your data dump Mm -hmm. and we will take the transactions and process them. And then we will assess you with the tax due. No auditor will come on site. There will be very little human interaction Mm -hmm. and they will wait until they can get you know, four, five, six, seven years of liability, and now it is worth a little bit more to the state to spend some time doing that. I think in the short term, the states are very overwhelmed with trying to process uh, registrations for all the registrations that are coming in. For the states that are not streamlined, that as part of their legislation, they have indicated that they will provide databases on taxability and rates and things like that. That's where the states are focusing, that they have to get those types of things uh, created and in place. Mm-hmm. And I think they're overwhelmed with the number of phone calls and you know help requests that are coming in from taxpayers that just don't really know what to do. So I think in the short term, we're not going to see a big increase in audits. Mm-hmm. But I also think the other thing that I'm counseling a lot of companies about that are taking that, you know, put my head in the sand type of approach right. is... You have to think about your exit strategy. And a lot of these smaller businesses have an exit strategy. Their goal is to get big enough so that a consolidator um, or an angel investor or a VC firm is going to snatch them up and buy them. 
and I am consulting to those acquiring companies, and they are saying if their target is not compliant, they're walking away from the deal. Wow. Or or they're making them do the cleanup, mm-hmm. or they're doing a purchase price adjustment. So if you're thinking that you have a near-term exit strategy, and, and what I'm advising is if your exit strategy is three to five years out, mm-hmm. you better deal with this now because otherwise you're going to have to deal with it in five years when the amount is going to be significantly bigger. And, and so that's where I think those businesses, if you know, if there's no exit strategy and they're not thinking they're getting out for 20 years, 20 years from now, it's going to be a whole different story. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a near-term exit strategy that you've you've been working towards, you better deal with it or you're going to not get as much money as you were hoping you would. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that take. Well, mm-hmm. Diane, we, I really appreciate you coming on here and being a part of Talking Tax. Thank you so much for your insight and hope to chat with you again soon. I appreciate it and thanks for the opportunity, Ryan. And here's the week's top news. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee is considering updating four existing tax treaties, which prevent two countries from taxing the same income. U.S. multinationals with operations in Japan, Luxembourg, Spain, and Switzerland are hoping the Senate will finally act to ratify the treaties after an almost 10-year delay. Big Four firm KPMG agreed to a $50 million settlement with the Securities and Exchange Commission for ethics violations. The SEC order described pervasive cheating at the Big Four firm. Audit staff members at all levels cheated on routine training exams, in some cases sharing their answers with colleagues and supervisors. KPMG also admitted, as part of the settlement, that former staff members conspired to cheat on the firm's annual regulatory inspection. The Treasury Department released proposed regulations that will help farmers calculate a new 20% deduction on income stemming from the sale of commodities to agricultural co-ops. The rules are intended to fix the 2017 tax overhaul's so-called grain glitch, which gave farmers a larger write-off for sales to co-ops than to large companies. For more on these and other stories, check out news.bloombergtax.com. That's all for this week. From Washington, I'm Siri Belusu. Thanks for listening. Suspending the Rules is Bloomberg Government's weekly deep dive into what's happening on Capitol Hill. As is often the case with suspension bills, there's something of a theme behind them. Every Monday, BGov reporters and legislative analysts preview the week in Congress. This would be a rejection of what the Trump administration called for. And break down the biggest bills on the agenda. Autonomous vehicles are going to know everything about where we go and what we're doing. You can listen and subscribe to Suspending the Rules wherever you get your podcasts. Find more information at about.begov.com.